Hello and welcome to the Jewish's Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso, and I am the creator of Jewish's, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week, I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. Today, we're all just going to acknowledge that maybe the audio is going to be a bit off. I know I mentioned the audio last episode, but that's because I'm very new to podcasting and I am most definitely not a podcast producer. And also, Mercury in retrograde has really played, it's just doing its thing this week. Uh, So today I come to you sitting on the floor recording as best I can, wrapped in a blanket, because that is, I think, the best way to do this today. If you are a podcast producer, or just a sound mixer, my email is below if you want to reach out. Okay, so I had a lot of reactions from last week's episode, and I wanted to acknowledge them right off the bat. I had very mixed reactions. Some people messaged me and they said, why did you add that warning at the beginning that this might be a dark or heavy topic? I thought it was fine. It didn't do anything to me. And then I had people message me and say, I couldn't listen to this podcast all the way through. It was just too hard. I I had to take breaks. One person specifically was like, I listened to the first part on my way to work. And then for the last 15 minutes of my drive, I had to listen to like upbeat Disney music. And then they listened to the rest of it when they got home that night. And I can completely understand the vast variations in how we deal with discussions regarding death. I personally don't really have too much of a, um, a low feeling after, you know, researching it because we all have our own interpretations here. I will say that, you know, there are definitely episodes that are really harrowing. As the person who is writing these ep- the scripts and the blog posts that these correlate to, I do a ton of research and some of them can be truly, truly horrifying. I would say the one that was the most difficult to read uh, or research definitely was the blood libel episode, which if you haven't listened to it yet, I actually really recommend you do. I'm very proud of that, but it was emotionally so difficult to get through the research there. There's a reason it took me so long to even put it out because as a Jewish person, having to read about the atrocities committed, it just was so hard. So personally, writing about these ones, researching these, compiling these episodes hasn't been nearly as, as bad as some of the other things I've done. But I do want to acknowledge that Everyone reacts differently, which is why I like to put those disclaimers in the beginning. I'm putting them again here. I will not be talking about anything graphic or gory. I don't want to have to say it. You don't want to have to hear it. It's pretty much the golden rule here. All right, let's go into housekeeping notes. 
Um, and I had someone mention it. Yes, I did steal the terminology of housekeeping. I'm pretty sure a couple podcasts use it, so I don't know, remember exactly which one I took it from. But anyway, I want to remind you all that I have a Patreon where you can support me. It starts as a little as $1 a month, but there are three tiers. You get behind the scenes content and you can request your favorite podcast episodes. It's a great way to support me and the podcast and Maybe eventually we can hire someone who does know what they're doing with audio. That's the dream, folks. That's the goal. And the last thing with housekeeping is Judaism is vast and complicated. Every community fosters their own traditions and beliefs. While I have covered many traditions and perspectives here, there will always be ones that I'm unable to fully cover or even mention. And I want to make special note, this is especially true if your community does not have a lot of literature on the topic and if I'm not familiar with them. Because I was researching specifically finding Sephardic practices, researching specific Jewish communities, but there's not as much information out there. So if you have something you want me to include, you are always more than welcome to email me. I can only speak firsthand from my experiences, which are largely Ashkenazi and a bit Sephardic uh, when it comes to tradition that I've experienced. This podcast is not meant to cover any particular aspect of the process of death in depth. It's more of a brief description of the certain transitional phases of the physicality of death, mourning, graveyard traditions, etc., With all that being said, I think it's time to start diving into our second episode in my installment in my series about death, which talks about the physicality of death, from how the soul leaves the body to the way that our communities mourn. I want to start off with one of my favorite quotes, flowers, though beautiful, will eventually die. A stone can symbolize the permanence of memory and will not die. Judaism's discussion of mourning and death really hinge on two basic concepts, respecting the dead and caring for the grieving family. Death is believed to take place when the heart no longer beats and the lungs no longer breathe. Um, It is believed that the soul exists, exits the body through the mouth, and according to some, The moment at which the soul exits can be heard throughout the universe, which I think is a really interesting discussion. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the moment of death, because I think this is something that is, in the world we live in, something that is political. Um, And of course, Judaism is complicated. The official halachic discussion for many years was things like suicide, even physician-assisted suicide, were not permitted. Um... And there have been discussions regarding things like being uh, uh, being allowed to die if you're on a ventilator, if your heart still beats and your lungs still function, do you take away care, right? Those are conversations that Jewish community has, and many people have come to a conclusion, but there are also folks who still discuss it. After the moment of death, there are varying belief systems regarding where the soul travels. Many believe the soul remains near its body for a period after death. 
For some, it's three days, while others describe seven. At the longest, it remains present until the decomposition of its corpse. The separation from the body is called chibut hakever. During this period, the disembodied being undergoes a purification process, surrendering her attachments to the physical realm. For those beings clinging to physical existence, the process of separation can be excruciatingly painful. The disembodied soul wanders around the world and beholds the body which was once its home, devoured by worms and suffering the judgment of the brave. Uh, this is a quote from the Zohar to 141b to 142a. Many wrote about how the actions in one's life informed the pain level during their process of separation from the body. Some of them said, specifically, if you were a spiritually enlightened person who understood the process after death, it wouldn't be as painful. Others said it was regarding the way that you had acted in your life and the harm you had committed. So it does vary slightly. Alternatively, prior to their transition to the next step, the soul stays near its body, which is primarily within the graveyard. This is one of the reasons why Jews very much aren't like, let's go hang out in graveyards. And specifically, chilling in a graveyard is not really recommended, um, which I think is really interesting because as a, as a community, we are very much for honoring and remembering those of past, including graveyard visits. It's just not a great place to go spend your your weekend there is a popular old wives tale that if you have a tattoo you cannot be buried in a jewish cemetery the truth is every jewish cemetery like any cemetery has the right to choose who they do and do not bury jews with tattoos are routinely buried in jewish cemeteries a rabbi once said beautifully if you can eat a bacon cheeseburger on the day of your death and still be buried here, you should be able to be buried here with a tattoo. Many young Jews are taught this superstition as a means of preventing them from getting tattoos, and others are told that the morticians will simply cut the tattoo from their body. Let me reassure you, that is simply untrue. Like every kind of cemetery, Jewish cemeteries are granted the ability to deny a person a burial. In theory, a Jewish cemetery could deny a person burial over a tattoo, just as a Christian or other religious cemetery could as well. Some people speculate that this started because of a few very specific Jewish cemeteries with Sate, which had that, that rule. But I also want to note that many Jewish cemeteries have completely disregarded it after the Holocaust. It is just something that very few still adhere to, not not saying there are none, but saying it as a blanket statement is not not the truth. And I understand why it's an old wives' tale. I get it. A lot of Jewish bubbies don't want their little grandkids getting tattoos, but the fear mongering is not great. After a death, the preparation of the body commences as quickly as possible. The preparations are informed by the idea of kibbutz ha'emet, honoring the deceased. To quote, Other core principles of the Jewish belief include respect for the dead, even a dead person's body, and care of their survivors. These concepts derive from the broader principles of honor due parents and other elders, the need to alleviate the suffering of others, and the basic equality of all before God. 
customs concerning the preparation of the body for funeral, for burial, the funeral mourning, and many others still relate to these principles. And this is something that I very much value in Judaism. This speediness for a burial, I feel, allows for a very specific quality of mourning. When I've mourned people who weren't Jewish, I have felt such a time of limbo between their death and sometimes almost a month for a funeral. And it's been, it's been very difficult to experience that time in between where they're not buried, they're dead, but they're, we're not mourning. We're not in, we'll talk about the stages of mourning in a bit, but we're just waiting. And it's a very strange period that I really appreciate that Judaism has that, that framework of grieving. The physical dead bodies are seen as highly impure, both physically and spiritually. The Hevra Kadisha, or the Holy Society, refers to a group of people who prepare the body for burial. This is seen as a good, righteous deed, as the dead cannot repay someone for their actions. Chesed um, Shelemetz, this is the concept of uh, true loving kindness, is, is one way of, of one translation. The, uh, the, the Holy Society prepares the body in lieu of a traditional mortician, though members of the society themselves may also be morticians. In many communities, its members are volunteers, and the ultimate goal of the Chirva Kadisha is to protect the body until it's buried, ensure that it is treated with the utmost respect, and perform tahara, or purification, before burial. A fundamental mental principle of Jewish belief, the impurity of the dead, underpins many of the customs related to death and burial defined in halachic law, for example, Numbers 19. Thus the importance of cemeteries, the dead must be separated by a distance from places of human habitation and confined to areas for them alone. Similarly, the Jewish custom of burying the dead very soon after death, this also relates to the body's decay and risk it poses to survivors. Perspectives on the relationship of the living person's to the body of the dead have varied, especially between urban versus rural communities, and in times and places where child mortality rates were especially and continuously high. In days past, it fell upon the family to prepare the body for burial. However, as communities grew, it fell more and more into a communal sphere, leading to the formation of holy societies. In places where none exists, Jewish families may still prepare their dead for burial, although it is much less common. Alternatively, members of another holy society may travel quickly in order to perform the mitzvah of uh, perform the mitzvah of preparing the dead for burial. In some communities, particularly Sephardic and Mizrahi ones, the body is circled seven times by the bereaved before being prepared for the funeral further as a means of spiritual protection. The preparation includes the tahara, or cleansing of the body. All clothes are removed and the body is covered with a white sheet. The body is washed in cold water as tehillim, or psalms, are recited. The body is washed twice before it's dressed in tachichim, bad time to have a sore throat, simple white garments of linen or muslin. 
in the modern day, Jews may also be buried in non-traditional clothes like a suit or a very pretty dress. Um, it is mentioned in some literature that if a person's blood soaked into their clothing before burial, the washing is not completed. So to bury all of them, including their blood, specifically some of the texts mention that it's important to respect every aspect of their dead body, including the blood that spilled from them, which I thought was really interesting. To quote, Jews were not buried in the clothes they wore during their lives. Rather, we are dressed in tachichim, simple white burial garments. This reminds us that no matter how many material blessings one accumulates during a lifetime, we are all equal in death. Additionally, tachichim remind us that when we leave this world for the next, we cannot take any of our earthly goods with us. I have always been fascinated with death, and I, I think it's comes through in the fact that I've decided to actually make an entire series on this topic. But one of the things that uh, young, very anxious me did was I, I started planning my own funeral because it felt very strange to leave something like that up to somebody else. And I remember when I was very young, I couldn't, I was like, do I, what am I, what am I going to do? You know, because when you're a kid and you do talk about funerals, if you do, before you may say anything, Maybe you were a kid who didn't do it. I feel like my friends and I at least discussed it. We're like, do we want to be cryogenically frozen? Do I want to be posed standing up in a cryogenic chamber? Anyway, I envisioned myself wearing my favorite cloak that my mother made me. It was this dark, it was black with silver fastenings. It was very heavy. I'm pretty sure it was meant to be like upholstery fabric for a couch. It was very thick brocade. Um, and I loved it. And I was like, I'm going to be buried in it. And you know what? If I could find it, I mean, I wouldn't be buried in it, but I would, I would still wear it if I could find it. Traditionally, Jewish men are buried with their talit. Before doing so, the tzitzit, which are the little fringes on the corners, are removed as a symbol of how the death has effectively removed the mitzvot's responsibilities he carried during his lifetime. In the modern day, people of all genders may be buried with talitots. Um, some folks will bury their children in their own if, if it's uh, possible. Once the body is prepared, it must be watched over until the time of burial, referred to as shmira or the guarding of the body. Individual, individuals, individuals who perform shmirah are referred to as shomrim, plural, or shomer, singular. During this time, prayers, particularly tehillim, are recited. At no point should the body be left alone before burial, though the shomer does not need to physically stare at the body for the entirety of the time. Um, this is actually really interesting. When I was researching this specifically, I found quite a few funeral homes that have volunteer sheets. Because this was traditionally done by your family, remember this comes from a time when Jews did it, they did it for themselves. If your grandpa died, it was up to your family to do this. But now there are, you know, people who live in areas where they don't have necessarily family of their own. And so you can volunteer to be a shomer and just be there and wait. And, you know, a lot of the websites that I visited, they will have uh tehlim. they'll have books of psalms there they'll have you know water bottles for you and all you do is sit and hold that space for someone else 
And I genuinely would, I genuinely consider that. Um, Jews are not traditionally embalmed or cremated. Um, I was going to expand more on this in the original blog post, but I never did because I felt like it was pretty clear, but maybe it wasn't. The body is not supposed to be altered. From dust we come to dust we shall return. Not the official line, though we can we can look for the... We can. I had someone mention that I do... Um, uh, that I do type sometimes when I'm on here because sometimes I want to look something else up. But here's the reality of being a one-person show. While some folks have a podcast producer to Google the things for them, I, I am sitting here on my floor with my computer in front of me. So uh, you're going to hear you're going to hear some of it. In Genesis 3.19, we read, From dust you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Which I think that's really beautiful. But it also reminds us that that is not what, that's why we're not embalmed. We are not meant to last. We are not meant to be preserved. Once our physical form dies, we are not meant to be kept in that way. And cremated, again, we are supposed to return to the earth as. Adam was formed. Adam was formed from earth um, and to that earth we are supposed to return. But I also do want to mention that in the time of the after the Holocaust there are people who do not react with the same violence or not necessarily violence but same aggressive reactions as there previously were. Um, I will say this, I've heard some people say that they, that cremation will damn your soul. I have found no literature supporting that, um, outside of just some people just saying it, but those are the reasons why we're not traditionally embalmed or cremated. Um, and then there is also the flip side of the post Holocaust Jewish life where there are many who hold an even greater resentment for being cremated. And for cremation as a whole. And I don't know if everyone knows this particularly. And I think I wonder how. We're slightly off topic here. I wonder how differently people would react to the violence of. Well genocide. Um, if they knew just how much. How, just how many of our traditional beliefs were intentionally crossed. And I say this because when I mentioned to a friend a couple years ago that Jews are not traditionally cremated, that was one of the first things she thought of. She got quiet and then she goes, I never even thought of that when we did the Holocaust you know, unit in school. Anyway, we shall move on. Unlike some other cultures, Judaism encourages the burial within 24 hours, though in the modern day it's often a few days in order to allow family members to come to services. Jews are not traditionally buried on Shabbat or holidays, so if you die on a Wednesday, let's get you buried Friday. Like, let's not wait, we can't, I'm not waiting until Sunday for this. 
or unless we, we really have to. Um, there have been times where Jews will not wait for their family. Like if you don't, if you don't catch a red eye, you're not coming. Um, to quote, the funeral is held soon after death to emphasize Jewish belief that the soul, wherein is the spark of life, re- immediately returns to God who gave it. So also, the body that has been on the been the earthly abode of the soul should immediately be returned to the dust. It should not be the object of mournful veneration, for it was only the container dwelling of the soul. Traditionally, funerals have served as a physical representation of the transition of a person between the realm of the living and the afterlife, but they are not the sole time of mourning for family, friends, and the community at large. Funerals are a marker of death. They mark that the person has begun the transition, even though it is not the end of the mourning journey. It strangely kind of reminds me of how bar and bat mitzvahs are you communicating with the community that you are of age or how a name ceremony is communicating with the community this is who you are it's just about that acknowledgement and putting to rest that part of the body but on a on the level of the mourners starting the journey of mourning a very important aspect of jewish funerals is the emphasis on equity and death. To quote, and this is a long quote, the Meri Babylonian Talmud Meri Katan 27a, based on the above passage, makes a general statement that people should always be careful that poor people or others are not ashamed of one's actions. Wealthy people should therefore do the same as the poor in order to not embarrass those who do not have the means. In any event, the above Above passage from the Talmud makes it very I'm so sorry, I have to stop because my cat is shoving her arm so far under the door I think she might get stuck. Eloise. And we're back. In any event, the above passage from the Talmud makes it very apparent that Jewish funerals are supposed to be simple. At the very least, in death, no distinctions should be made between the rich and the poor. All should be buried in the same simple shroud and a plain wood coffin, if a coffin is used. In Israel and some parts of the world, the custom is not to bury the dead in a casket. This, in order to literally fulfill the verse, Genesis 13, 3, 19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The reason for using wooden coffins is that Rabbi Levi, Midrash Genesis Rabbah, comments on the verse, Genesis 3, 8, amongst the trees of the garden, that here we have a hint that the descendants of Adam and Eve shall be buried in caskets of wood. Before people say, you know, well, why isn't there wealth distribution? That's a really important concept in Judaism. The concept of tzedakah is often translated to charity in English, but I would probably translate it more to mutual aid. Tzedakah comes from the root word tzedek, which is justice, and it discusses how it is our job, it is our job as people who, who believe in justice to make sure that everyone in our community is cared for and taken care of, especially monetarily. If you have, you are required to give. If you have money, it is your job to give it to those, to, to members of your community who need it. If we live in a capitalist society, it is your job to take care of other people. And it's not rooted in charity. It is rooted in justice. 
And I think that's a very interesting perspective that the word charity doesn't always acknowledge. For many modern Jews, funerals have taken on a more Western experience and are influenced by the deeply ingrained Christianity of most Western cultures. While in antiquity, Jewish processions may have included flutes, traditional Jewish funerals do not include music at all. Parshitsky notes that the use of music serves to elevate the human spirit, and that they also serve as a parallel to the religious blessing. Parshitsky also writes that in the new ceremonies, there is a great deal of investment in the aesthetics of the ceremony, which meets the secular needs of Western values. This can be seen in a coffin, not in a shroud, using flowers instead of laying stones, organizing chairs in the cemetery, arranging shading, distributing water, using amplification system and distributing pages with the order of the ceremony and the picture of the deceased. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. I want to make it clear. No one is judging the way you choose to have a funeral. It's just interesting to see how the evolution of funerals have changed throughout the world. Some of the main differences that you'll see between a, even a secular Western funeral and a Jewish one would be that Judaism does not encourage the public viewing of the body. One of the most striking differences is that casket remains closed. Some Jews believe it's done in order to keep the soul in the body where it belongs and not become a dybbuk. A traditional Jewish funeral will include a service and a eulogy by the deceased's close family, friends, or rabbi. Following the services within the synagogue or chapel, a funeral procession carries the body to the graveyard. To quote, The body is escorted to the graveyard, with close relatives and friends carrying it or accompanying it on the foot at least part of the way into the cemetery. At the graveside, after the body is de deposited in the grave, each person present will take, will place three shovelfuls of dirt into the grave, starting with the immediate family. One person does this and then inserts the shovel into the ground. Then the next person comes and does the same. The Kaddish and the Pere and Malachamim, the God full of mercies, are recited at the graveside after burial. It is also custom among observant Jews to wash their hands before leaving the cemetery because of the impurity implied in contact with a dead body, or even by walking in a cemetery. Until the burial, everyone was focused on honoring the deceased. Historically, to quote, the entire community was expected to join in this procession, for the mitzvah of accompanying the dead, accompanying the dead to the graveside, supersedes all of the mitzvot, including Torah study. This is especially true for a met mitzvah, a person who has died without family to care for them. This mitzvah is fulfilled once the grave is closed or fell. And this idea of accompanying the body is again the same the same value of honoring the deceased, honoring the body that held them. And depending on what you believe, which we talked about in the last episode, if you believe that you have a soul or if you believe that you, once your heart stops beating and your brain stops functioning, you as a person cease to exist and you don't, there's no soul or anything, there is still this belief in honoring the vessel that once contained you honoring that vessel until the end, and the end being, well, burial. Once at the gravesite, it is customary for the recitation of some prayers, the lowering the body into the grave, a short ceremony, and this includes the recitation of the first mourner's kaddish, and finally, filling the grave. After the rabbi recites, may they go to their place in peace, or may 
insert name, go to their place in peace, primary mourners are handed a trowel or shovel in order to begin filling in the grave. Uh, some re customs require the mourner to do so with the back of the shovel. Once the immediate family have filled the grave, the shovel is handed to other funeral attendants until the grave is filled. Some families have chosen to move away from the physical act of filling the grave and replace it with casting flowers instead. Some people do both. It was a little bit difficult to find exactly, um, you know, the, the variation of traditions here. Um, some people I've seen use rocks, which I thought was really interesting, but there is some variation. The mourners are encouraged to stay until every attendee has added to the grave, or at minimum, the person themselves had. The funeral concludes with the chanting of the prayer mentioned above, apparently of late medieval Kabbalistic origin, but today the standard prayer for the dead, recited on all formal occasions of remembrance. Before we move on, I wanted to mention a news story that made me sob when I read it for the first time. It is absolutely heart-wrenching, and I'm tearing up just thinking about it. Um, it was written for Chabad.com by Menachem Posner. So this year, a man named Jules Clavin lived in a small Alaskan town as the only Jew. Um, he wasn't born there. He lived in his Jewish community, but he ended up moving to Alaska for retirement. And he, he lost contact with, with his Judaism and his Jewish community, truthfully. To quote, he was in his 80th year and terminally ill. He called the Alaska Jewish Campus, which is listed on the Chabad.org directory, with a single wish. I have three weeks left, he told Rabbi Levy uh, Glitzenstein, who picked up the phone. I don't have any family with me, and although I wasn't so involved in the Jewish community, I really want to be buried with my people. Rabbi, can you help me? He and the rabbi spoke every other day until his death. He is said to have asked, Rabbi, will you make sure to come take me? every time. Rabbi Glitzenstein led him through the final confessions uh, mentioned in the last episode, and to quote, even though he had not lived among Jews or attended services for so long, Clavin remembered the Shema prayer by heart in Hebrew. When he did pass away on the 20th of July, his remains were moved to Anchorage, where the Chavra Kadisha of Seattle performed the Tahara. They flew in specially for him. They then felt held his funeral where over a hundred Jews were in attendance. To quote, Not one person in the crowd had ever met the deceased, but that didn't matter. He was family, a fellow Jew. Oh, anyway, it made me cry so hard um, when I read it the first time, uh, when I told my mom about it, when I talked to multiple of my friends about it, uh, when I was reading it again for this podcast, and it just... It doesn't break my heart, but it makes my heart feel really full and really, yeah, it makes my heart feel really full. You know, for so many people, we go through so many stages of our lives and many of us do walk away from Judaism for a time. You know, some people refer to it off the derech, you know, whatever you want to call it. And I think there is a magic in knowing there is something so reassuring in knowing that we can turn our backs on Judaism, but Judaism doesn't turn its back on us. Anyway, I'm going to take a quick break because uh, I'm just crying a little bit and then I'll, I'll come back. 
In accordance with ancient tradition, Jews bring little stones to place on the graves. The more pebbles on the tomb, the more living is the memory of the deceased. Perhaps one of the most famous of all Jewish death rituals is that of placing stones on graves instead of the more commonly seen flowers. I did want to mention, because I have quite a few people asking, it's not offensive to bring flowers. It's just not what we do necessarily. If you love flowers, you can still bring them, but it's it's not really our custom. Um, and in some communities, it is necessarily not. It's It might be considered offensive. I know in some specific Orthodox communities, it is seen as a, taking on a custom from a non-Jewish culture and therefore not permitted. Planting uh, flowering plants on Jewish graves is another topic, however. To quote, there are many different stories cited as the historical origin of this tradition. It may trace back to the biblical times when graves were simply marked with small stone mounds. Since gravestones were not utilized during this period, the mounds helped mark the location of the grave. In essence, the act of placing small stones on graves served as a way to preserve the gravesite, so that as time passed, it could be found again. Alternatively, it's believed that the Israelites piled stones on graves in order to create clear markers of them, in order to ensure that no Kohen, or high priest, could come in contact with the grave unknowingly. Kohenim observed their own rules regarding dead bodies, which I will not go into very much, but, um, for example, Kohenim don't generally go to funeral services unless it's a direct family member, because Kohenim are not to come in contact with the dead almost ever. Um, it's, it's a bit, it's much more complicated. And I'm always grateful that I'm not a Kohen when I read all the rules, because I, there's a lot of them to remember. To quote, Rabbi Simcha Weintraub, rabbinic director of the New York Jewish Healing Center, once said, the Hebrew word for pebble is tzorot, and it happens that this Jewish, this Hebrew word also means bond. When we pray the memorial el malarachamim prayer, and at other times, we ask that the deceased be bound in the bond of life. Tzorot Sometimes reading the transliterations trips me up way more than anything. By placing the stone, we show that we have been there, and that the individual, well, by placing the stone, we show that we have been there and that the individual's memory continues to live on in and through us. In the mystical sense, the Talmud mentions that after a person dies, their soul continues to dwell in the grave where they were buried. Jews believe that placing the stones on the grave would keep the soul down in this world. Some people find comfort in this. Another interpretation suggests that the stones will keep demons and golems from getting into the graves. This is one of my favorite parts of it. It's and I discussed this specifically within my blog post on, and I believe also my podcast on Dibukim or Dibeks, as you might know them, where staying out of cemeteries and placing rocks in the bodies was believed to keep the spirit there as opposed to wandering throughout the rest of the cemetery. And if someone, say, passed and their soul was clinging to life and they're going through that painful separation and they suddenly see a very friendly person who they may or may not want to possess, the stones will hopefully keep them in the body. The other part is keep demons and golems reigning to the graves. Now, some of you may ask, yes, golems are supposed to be protectors, but one of the things that we see very consistently is golems must be controlled, and a golem can break against its master. And... Uh, 
Rampage? Is that the word I'm going to go with? Sure. Now, the supernatural aspect of this is often denounced or denied in contemporary Jewish spaces, which seek a far more rationalistic approach to these things, which that's not uncommon. Rabbi Goldie Milgram explains further that any traces, many trace the origin of leaving a stone to earlier sources that given that the stone is one of the metaphor for God in the Torah and Jewish prayer. Moses sits on the rock, hits it in frustration and lost. Miriam, the water finder, his sister, had just died. Carves the tablets from it and is sheltered, and its womb with a view its womb with a view cleft, Jacob's ladder arises from it. Stoning was used for capital punishment, and bodies were covered with stones. Agal reveal action for the bones to be later be collected. And in the introduction to the Zohar, we learn that a soul is cleaved from the mountains. We have Maoz Tzur, Maoz Yisrael, and gorgeously Tzur Helvi Beit Tzara, God as our umbilical tether, and much more. The Tzur He Ha'olamim is where the soul arises after finding its embodied nutrients returned to the earth to nurture the cycle of life. The headstone symbolizes the soul, and the stone we leave is the stone symbolizing our own soul, all tethered together in mitzvah and metaphor. That's a really interesting specific thought. Um, I wasn't familiar with that one until I started researching, actually. Now, special care is usually taken when selecting a stone to put on a loved one's grave. It may be from a place of meeting to the deceased or simply an interesting or attractive rock. Because there is no commitment behind placing a stone, this action serves as an opportunity for you to create your own meaningful ritual. And this is where I can mention some people ask, can you bring crystals? Yeah, you can. Um, and I also will say that there has been a um, really horrific, horrific trend. It's not new, but it's definitely a trend of Christians going into Jewish cemeteries and placing rocks. And they'll place them. And when you pick them up, if someone were to pick up the rock and turn it over, you'll find things like Jesus loves you and then their website. They will literally leave proselytizing stones painted on Jewish graves. And I want to be specific. In a lot of the U.S., Jews are not buried in non-Jewish cemeteries. Um, I know some do are in military cemeteries, but there's, there's not as much of an overlap as you would think between Jewish graves and non-Jewish graves. So it's even more nefarious when you realize that a lot of these Christians are intentionally going to Jewish cemeteries with bringing pre-painted rocks to leave on Jewish graves to proselytize to mourners. And that really upsets me. Really bugs me. So once the body is buried, well, technically before the body is buried, we see the stages of mourning. The first is Aninut. The first period of mourning, Aninut, occurs up until the time of the funeral. During this period, typically mourners are not required to perform time-bound mitzvot. Mind you, this is going to be, again, at most a couple days. To quote, the experience of pain at the death of a loved one is universal. Jewish tradition considers excessive mourning undesirable and outlines a number of rituals on a specified schedule to aid close family and friends of the dead to pass through their grief. At the time of death, a period of intense mourning, aninut, begins and lasts until the funeral. It is, is assumed the close family is too upset to interact with others, along with taking up the task of preparing the body and arranging the funerals. 
Others will avoid expressing consoling words and making any significant show of their own grief. Visitors to the house will stay silent unless the mourners address them directly. Also during this period, the act of Kriya is performed. For Ashkenazi communities, this happens before the commencement of the funeral services. Um, to quote, Jewish law defines a primary mourner as a parent, sibling, child, or spouse of the deceased. Traditionally, all primary mourners who are present at the moment of death perform the ritual of Kriya, tearing of a garment at this point, and continue to wear their torn clothing as mourners. Others who are not present in the room at the moment of death also perform the ritual of Kriya, even if they will not be mourners. This could include physicians, nurses, caretakers, visiting friends, relatives, or others. Primary mourners who are not present traditionally perform Kriya either when they first learn of the death or at the time of the funeral service. The common current practice is for primary mourners all to perform, also to perform Kriya at the, at the funeral. It is understood that those in the room have been present and witnessed the moment of transition, and therefore had had a direct experience of being in the presence of death. It is customary that those who visit a cemetery wash their hands upon leaving the cemetery because they also have been in the presence of death. All the more, all the more for, the, for those who witness the actual moment of death. Even the death of a stranger is understood to affect a person, and being a witness to the death is understood to leave the observer vulnerable, at least for a short time. Kriya marks that vulnerability. So Kriya you didn't understand it, is the tearing of clothing as a sign of mourning. Now, sometimes you do rip your actual clothes. Some people say you should rip your outer garments, but not your inner garments, and you can change clothes. Unless you physically witness the death, you can change your clothes into something you're willing to rip. Um, in a lot of new Jewish customs, um, they will rip black cloth, and you will pin the cloth to your clothing, so not to rip your actual clothes. Now, in Sephardic communities, Kriya is performed after the funeral when the primary mourners return home. So there is a variation there. After the funeral begins the secondary stage of mourning, Shiva. Now, I'm sure you've all heard about Shiva, sitting Shiva. It's very, you know, most people have heard of it. Um, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, I think there's a particularly fantastic episode where Christina Yang, our resident Jew, uh, talks her disgruntled friend Izzy through Shiva. And it leads to the perfect quote from Christina Yang. This is, I'm a Jew. I know food and death. Um, which is one of my, well, it's a fantastic quote. But <sighs> while Shiva is usually included in media, for Jewish media at least, a lot of times it doesn't really fully cover it. Um, and it can leave people with a very strange idea of what it is. Like, I once had someone let me know that they were really nervous because they're going to go visit someone's house who sits Shiva. And they were like, everyone's not showering. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, it's going to be smelly. And I'm like, it's not going to be smelly. And they're like, well, do I have to sit on the ground? And I'm like, no. I'm like, what I hurt? And I'm like, who did you hear this from? Please. Um, so, to quote. The traditional mourning periods are well-defined and calendared. The first period, called Shiva, Hebrew for seven, is a time of deep mourning lasting a week from the time the deceased family returns home after the funeral. The first meal at the house, S. Saudat Havra, the meal of condolence, is typically prepared by neighbors of the family and includes food symbolic of life, 
such as hard-boiled eggs, bread, stewed lentils, and in some traditions, the lack of holes in eggs also re represents the bereaved's failure to express words in, uh, grief in words. For the week of Shiva, mourners keep their mirrors covered, burn candles, sit on low stools or on the floor, and refrain from working or reading, leaving the house, showering or bathing, shaving, wearing leather sho shoes or jewelry, listening to music and sexual relations. It is common for visitors to continue to prepare meals for the house and refrain from initiating conversation. The family may lead prayer services at the house, but also may choose not to interact with their visitors at all. Now, these are commonly referring to Ashkenazi practices, and though there is not a massive amount of variation between Ashkenazi and non-Ashkenazi practices here, there is some. Um, again, before you leave the cemetery, you got to ritually cleanse yourself. Uh, so hand washing, sometimes it's done at the, at the cemetery. You wash before you leave the cemetery. Sometimes you do it at your front door. Sometimes you do both, depending on your tradition. The first meal, uh, uh, so that is traditionally prepared by family, friends, the holy society that prepared the body, uh, your neighbors, or your, by your community. Each Jewish community kind of has unique traditions here. For example, in a Sephardic household, the Zohar is studied throughout that week. Uh, in Syrian homes, one must uh, visit to provide their condolences three times. Moroccan communities often say, Min meaning, may you be comforted from heaven upon leaving the home of the bereaved. One Iranian custom includes a study session known as Tahirim. Nope. Tahirim. Look at that. Uh, this study session often draws the entirety of the community together. Uh, in a lot of communities, keeping a candle lit for the entirety of the seven days is considered very, very sacred. During Shiva, mourners typically sit low to the ground on stools, pillows, benches. Food is typically brought and served by those coming to comfort the mourners. Oh, also another very common food in a lot of uh, Mizrahi uh, Jewish homes during this time is Turkish coffee and um, certain pastries, savory pastries. So food is typically brought and served by those coming to comfort the mourners. Mirrors are covered with cloths. Uh, mourners typically refrain from shaming and grooming during the seven-day period, and subsequently haircuts are also forbidden. Covering mirrors and taking away the need to primp allows mourners to focus solely on grieving. However, their Jewish mysticism provides a more sinister history to the practice and a more supernatural version. Kabbalists write that all types of evil spirits and demons come to visit a family in mourning. When a soul leaves this world, it leaves a void an emptiness that is prone to be filled by dark forces. This is because wherever there is a vacuum, negativity can creep in. And so the, ho the house of mourning, the place where the loss is felt the most, is a magnet for evil spirits. These demons cannot be seen by the naked eye. But when looking in a mirror, you may catch a glimpse of the reflection in the background. And so we cover the mirrors in the house of mourning, because we don't want to be alarmed by seeing these demonic visitors. There's another interesting belief system that Lilith dwells in mirrors, and not dwells in mirrors, but that mirrors serve as a transitional phase for her. She can travel through them. So covering them not only prevents you from seeing them, but hopefully present, prevents more from entering due to being drawn to that vacuum. After the seven-day period of Shiva is over, next begins Shloshim. To quote, 
The next stage of mourning of the mourning process is known as shloshim, literally 30. This 30-day period is counted from the day of the funeral and includes the shiva period. Following shiva, the mourner generally turns to work during shloshim, but is still not completely back in the world. This ongoing mourning is expressed by avoiding parties, concerts, and other forms of public entertainment. This also includes music. Um, depending on your community, a lot of communities will not listen to any music for the first year. Um, there is one scene in the Jewish TV show Shtisel that shows listening to music for the first time after a death of a parent and wife. Mourners typically refrain from cutting their hair and shaving, but also um, just stay away from celebrations. So this includes certain holidays. Quote, at the conclusion of Shloshim, the formal mourning period ends, except for those who are mourning parents. For these mourners, f- formal mourning, including the rec- recitation of the mourner's Scottish, lasts 11 months or a full year. Some people may wish to mark the end of Shloshim with a special minion, where the family where the mourner or the family members talk about the deceased. Also, any public memorial service is usually held at the conclusion of Shloshim. The memorial service may include several speakers and music or poetry. They might, might not have been included at the funeral service. So then there is the first year. Primary mourners each observe a different time of mourning after their loss. For children who have lost parents, the mourning remains for one year. During this period, the mourner's cottage is recited daily. Depending on the community, the mourner may refrain from taking part of certain joyous activities like listening to music, attending celebrations, wearing bright clothes. Uh, some people specifically wear black for the entirety of the year. The first year is known as Shnata Avel. The period from the end of Shloshim to the end of the first year after death is a time we are encouraged to get back into life while honoring our dead on a daily basis through the saying of the Kaddish. Traditionally, mourners who have lost a parent say Kaddish daily for 11 months, while mourning for all other relatives ends with Shloshim. In modern practice, mourners may recite Kaddish for 11 months for other immediate relatives as well. So this is something that specifically changed. It used to only be for parents. Now some people do it for their wives, their children, their siblings, etc. At the end of the first year is the creation of the Matzava, a monument which typically comes in the form of a gravestone. After being placed, there is an unveiling ceremony to share with the world. Times vary by community, but generally between 11 and 12 months uh, to mark after the date of death, which is tracked by the Hebrew calendar. I want to remember, uh, want to remind people that one of the one of the things that people were dealing with after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that non-Jews didn't quite understand this, and some went as far as to accuse people of misogyny and specifically accused the Jewish cemetery of misogyny. And being like, well, why is she not getting her gravestone yet? And it was very interesting because specifically on TikTok, there were a couple of videos that went really viral about it. And a couple of Jews made videos responding. And some of the people were like, I don't buy it. I'm sorry, you don't buy our hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years old tradition? Huh? What do you mean you don't buy it? No one's selling you anything. We're telling you how our tradition... What? Anyway, I want to specifically include that. Um, so the grave was, can be marked with pebbles beforehand, but it won't have an official gravestone. Or the gravestone is just not placed. 
The unveiling ceremony may include short prayers, recitation of the Tehillim, and there should be a minion present for the recitation of the mourner's Kaddish. To quote, the Kaddish is recited as well on the yard site anniversary of the death of the beloved kin. It is so connected with the experience of mourning for the deceased that it has become popularly known as the prayer for the dead. What is surprising about the Kaddish is that nowhere in the prayer is there a reference to the dead. No request is made on their behalf, and there's not any allusion to mourning through the mourning experience. What the prayer specifically does is sanctify and exalt God as the creator and sovereign and praises their name, and there is a request for the coming of the kingdom of God. In the Sephardic version, there is an added request for redemption and for the soon advent of the Messiah. In this request, a petition is made that this coming would happen in the days of the lifetime of the ones praying. At the end of the prayer, there is also a request for a peaceful and blessed life for the worshippers and for the house of Israel. So, the anniversary of the death day is known as a yartzeit in Yiddish. Yartzeit literally comes from the word yar, year, and sight, time. It's also known as mishmara, ayreat, medado, año, and nahala in Sephardic communities. There is a lot of variation there. Um, a lot of modern Sephardic communities have adopted the word yartzeit uh, due to its inclusion in modern Hebrew, but I did want to mention that there are other terms for it. Someone in my comment section noted that Anya is often used to specifically refer to the first anniversary of death, and after that, they used Nahala. So I do think it's really interesting, and I would love to know if your family uses another term. I would love to hear it. Um, I grew up with, you know, German-speaking parent, and, you know, we use the Yiddish terminology. So I grew up with Yahrzeit, uh, or Yahrzeit, depending on if I'm saying it, but I would love to hear others. The first Yagat site is commemorated on the anniversary of the day of the funeral, and from then on it is observed on the anniversary of the day of death. At this time, it is particularly commendable for family members of deceased to lead the synagogue service, take Aliyah, read a passage of the Torah, and recite Kaddish. It is also traditional to light a memorial candle in the home, a yard site candle that burns for 24 hours. This candle, as was the Shiva candle, is symbolic of the soul and the spirit of the deceased. If possible, one should also visit the grave on the day of the yard site. Some Ashkenazi Jews fast on the day of yard site for a parent or grandparent. By commemorating the death of the beloved one instead of his birthday, Judaism celebrates a life fulfilled. I also did want to mention this one specific thing. I, um, I didn't know where else to fit it, so I kind of just put it at the very end of the, the original blog. But it was talking about in the days of the second temple. So we've seen, you know huge variations in the way that we've celebrated death and that's been impacted by a number of factors general evolution of society where we are how we are where we're allowed in different areas um the level of oppression and just the general existence of jews has changed and especially changed in the way that we celebrate death so this is a very long quote but i think it's a really good one in the days of the Second Temple, the Mishnah and the Talmud, we played the flute in order to arouse sorrow over the dead. But in the Middle Ages in Ashkenaz, they stopped doing so because the constitution of the Gentiles. The custom is that the deceased must be brought for burial on that day, except in cases where he wishes to honor the deceased in the presence of many people. In certain places in the past, they would have to cancel work or Talmud Torah to accompany the dead, due to the fact that Levi's death is a great mitzvah. Even before the death of a person, they used to hold a minion around him so that while he was dying, he would ask for her forgiveness for his sins, and he called Shema Yisrael. 
that a person before his death will ask forgiveness from God and other human beings in which he has harmed. Nowadays, there are many cases in which a person dies at the hospital, and there is no possibility for performing the confession. After the death of a person, a memorial candle is placed, and also mentioned the days of his remembrance in order to symbolize the eternity of the soul. I do want to mention, though, that specifically because this talks about Ashkenaz, maybe the um, the tradition or custom of not listening to music is specific to Ashkenazi communities. That's something I did not research. Um, I don't think I said it was for everyone, but I do want to make it clear in case I did it did come across that way. There is a chance that Sephardic communities um, and Mizrahi communities and communities around the global Jewish world um, also do it. But I, I can't say with certainty. But those are generally the way that we deal with death and mourning. And I want to also mention that in the modern day, very often, we do also acknowledge friends and the way that our community is impacted. And families will often invite the closest friends to come partake in Shiva. And especially when it comes to lighting yard site candles, I light for my grandparents. Even though it is not a necessarily traditional thing, modern Judaism has allowed us to evolve to continue that evolution and to allow us to further mourn those who impacted us and to grieve and to commemorate and to honor them. And so that is the secondary installment of my series on death. Next episode, we will be discussing the afterlife, and it will probably be longer than this one. With all of that said, Let's get on to sources. Again, there are 23 of them, so I absolutely cannot uh, read them all out because many of them are articles that I just can't cite. But some of the ones that are websites, I will cite. So sdjewishworld.com, rohatinjewishheritage.org, uh, this one's Syracuse University, jewishfuneralhome.com, jewishfunerals.org, a semantic scholar episode, uh, thing, shiva.com, Jewish funeralhome.com, jewishfunerals.org is great, Hevra of Calgary, Sherman's Chapel, uh, My Jewish Learning, modadaniela.com, chabad.org, uh, JTA, and .university. Again, all of these will be linked in the description of this podcast. Oh, I remember what I forgot at the very beginning. To everyone who has left reviews, thank you so much. Talk, uh, the reviews are so very helpful. I mean this very much so. Um, there is a really sweet review that was left by someone whose name is Rage Quit Like a Boss. And they left a very kind comment and I read all of them. If you leave a, a review on Apple Podcasts, I will, I will read it. I will. Um, I think we're at 87 or 88 now. Um, and I would love to hit 100 if you want to leave a review. Anyway, that's all I've got for this week, and I will see you again next week. Goodbye.